Are there any newsmen there who can hear me? Over. Place is full up. Over. All right, fellas, here's your story. North Pole, November 3rd. Ned Scott reporting. Watch the skies. Everywhere. Keep looking. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to another installment of the IMMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son, and I've made him watch another movie. And I was so happy to watch this one again. Yes, this is one that we have seen before. He didn't know I was springing in on him for the podcast, but it's not the first time he's seen it. This is actually one of my favorite movies. Really? Yes, I love this one. This one is... This is the third time I've watched it, and the first time I watched it, it didn't quite click. The second time, I fell in love with it, and this third one, I am delighted to rip it apart. (laughs) Rip it apart? That's going to be interesting. Oh, yeah. There's pieces of how this thing ticks that I am intrigued to get to point out. Oh, okay. Like, dismantle it and see how it works inside. Oh, yeah. this is not a, this is, this is a lovingly remove all the pieces and lay them out on the tray, okay. clean everyone and put it back together. Okay, got I, it. I, I may be spoiling some <laughs> of my ending opinions here, but there's something about this. Well, you know, I think anybody who's listened to this podcast uh, uh, before can probably tell from the way we discuss a movie how we're going to talk about it at the end, at least in terms of the binge or no binge, screen or no screen. Yeah, that's, that's kind of one yeah. of those, you can see it coming. And this movie is a good one for this uh, time of year. It's nice and cold. I've got a blanket going on yep. right now. Yeah, we have plenty of coffee, as usual. We do that in the middle of August. So yeah. The coffee is no, <laughs> no change. But the movie we're talking about today is The Thing from Another World. Oh. It is sometimes just referred to as The Thing. This is a 1951 movie. Uh, its full title, though, is The Thing from Another World. And, and that, that, that title screen does kind of show that. It, do, it shows you the thing as the big letters, but that, that secondary piece is not hidden. It makes that very clear. It pulls that through, and the otherworldliness of it is a constant point of reference. Right. You know, I'm sure somebody going to a movie theater in 1951 uh, to go see this movie, they were going and asking for a ticket to The Thing. Well, actually. Wait a minute. No, they were just going and asking for a movie ticket, because movies only had one screen back then. (laughs) If there were AMCs in 1951, uh, then uh, they would be asking for a ticket to The Thing, not The Thing from Another World. If they're asking for The Thing, they forgot what the word ticket was for a moment. I can feel (laughs) them. I do that all the time. Forget nouns, but still. Yeah. Okay. So, my my argument does not really hold. (laughs) But yeah, well, the thing the thing from another world, 1951 produced by Howard Hawks and his Winchester Films uh movie company not credited to Howard Hawks in terms of direction, which is something of I mean some people I think have manufactured controversy around there. It was directed by Christian Nyby. And some people have said, well, they put Nyby's name on it, but you'll look at this, beginning to end, it's clearly a Howard Hawks movie. And I go along with how Nyby has responded to that, which is, of course it looks like a Howard Hawks movie. He was my mentor. I was trying to learn everything I could from Howard Hawks about how to make a movie. 
I made something that was as close to a Howard Hawks movie as I could. And sure, he was a producer, but I, I, I think it's, uh, it's not fair to say that this was, was directed by Howard Hawks. I would go with the credits, go with Christian Nyby. I'm having, I, oh goodness, I'm having Orson Welles' F is for fake flashbacks in terms of the concept of what makes a real Picasso or what makes a real, <laughs> oh goodness, this, that, that's getting deep fast, yeah. but there's kind of a point there that there is a style that was being used here. Even if he wasn't the one directing it, it was being the, it was the, the reference point in which it was being shown. This was the style it was trying to use to tell this story in that sense. Right. And it was very, very specific in its use of that style. It was very finely tuned to put the viewer, put the audience where these characters were. Mm -hmm. And they they used some terrific uh, tricks and style elements to do that. One of the key things that I always think about with this movie and just the style overall, this is a movie that explains as, as itself, it shows the importance of side dialogue of the little tiny bits of dialogue that seem unconnected to the greater plot because it is those little bits where this movie fleshes out a world it is amazing i love how it does that you're absolutely right it's very it's very naturalistic in that it's not people delivering dialogue. It's conversations happening and conversations happening among multiple people in different conversations in the same room at the same time. And that you're right, you're right that that very, very quickly puts us into the tone of the movie, lets us know who these characters are far more quickly than if we had to wait for each character to deliver their character defining intro. And also, it's one of the many things that this movie does to create a sense of claustrophobia. Like, you can't get away from other people and their conversations. We're all just in this place together. And, and there's always this concept of show, don't tell in terms of a lot of visual media or such, in, in terms of writing, in terms of all these things. This is a movie there that what it has shown you, it trusts to be impactful enough that the things it tells you gain weight because of that so you can watch a scene and follow one person in a big battle and then in the aftermath when a side commentary as a guy gets his arm patched up he says of course we fight a thing and i break my arm falling over a table you're like i didn't even notice if he did that is so exactly the sort of environment this is that has such realism. I don't, I can never, in watching it multiple times, I've never watched to see if he falls over a table, but I know that's what happened because the rest of the movie showed me enough for me to trust the thing and one character told another because it was shown by their world to each other. And a nice bit of continuity there. I'm with you. I don't know. There is so much going on. It's this big fight scene, and we'll get to that as we talk about the movie, but you're right. It's this, this big fight scene in a dark room that is illuminated only by a growing fire. And this character who was saying this was a, as a journalist who's you know, got a, a camera. He's a reporter and photographer. I don't know from that scene if the, that actually is shown in the movie. But it's in the trailer. 
It is. You're right. The trailer for the movie, which is on the DVD we have, actually shows him falling backwards over a stool or a table or something with his camera in hand and taking the picture as he falls backwards. And as he says in that dialogue you mentioned, he took a picture of the ceiling instead of the exciting stuff going on. And that's how he broke his arm. So you're right. They That wasn't just a funny bit of dialogue they threw in. It was connected with what they blocked and what they shot for the movie. Okay, yeah. So there's all these little tiny bits there where this, the communication, I love movies that have what I always call patter talk, that back and forth very quick. Cary Grant movies have a bunch of that where two characters shown to be quick and quick-witted will back and forth conversations and have almost three different lines of dialogue conversation-wise between each other, all interwoven with each other. This is not that sort of dialogue, but this is a community's cross-talk conversations happening in a space. And the very first scene of the movie does a great job of that. And just to, to start us out, this movie is set in the North. It starts out at an Air Force base in Anchorage, Alaska, and I mentioned it's a 1951 movie. It was a you know present-day movie at the time, contemporary to when it was made. So it's in 1951 in an Air Force base in Anchorage, Alaska. And in that opening scene, there's a newspaper man who's looking for a story. He's going to where the, um, the, uh, where, where the people who would be doing interesting things are. We learn later that he knows some of the military people that he encounters because he was a war correspondent. And he comes, goes into that, I don't know if it's the officer's club technically, but it's a place where you know, some of the officers are hanging out. And in that one scene, we get to hear these multiple overlapping conversations with the reporter and with our, uh, our protagonist for the movie, who's uh, an Air Force pilot, Captain uh, Patrick Hendry, played by, uh, by Kenneth Toby. And we hear Captain Hendry and his crew his um his co-pilot his navigator and uh and they're they're playing cards they want to know if the newspaper guy wants to be dealt in and we we learn about these four characters so much in that that one scene and we learn that they are that they know one another that they work as a team that they are casual but have a chain of command that they are all quick-witted and all of these are consistently followed through and are important and, and are important through the uh the rest of the movie so that first scene is a great example of what this movie does throughout in terms of the dialogue and revealing character even just the opening of that i love it because of that kind of immediate thrust into environment with a it implies a world that has all these other stories there, this is a story that is important and is being shown, but it's not because there is not other stuff that has or will happen in this world. Right. It's very much a, it's one of these, it's a day like all other days kind of beginnings, but in, not in a contrived or boring way. It's just, even if the movie were just about an ordinary day for this guy, I would want to watch it because yeah. they're interesting to listen to and to watch. These are fun, interesting characters, and there's even an interesting... Uh, we're going to lead into an interesting character interaction that definitely has a whole lot of other story that is not shown on screen that's wrapped up into how the interaction works. Right. Because it's not a, a day like all other days, uh, because uh, Captain Hendry gets word that his commanding officer wants to talk to him. 
And uh, it's about, there's a, an Arctic expedition up north that, uh, that needs some, uh, some help because they've discovered something unusual. And that, that scene also could be a throwaway scene, but there are so many fun little bits. It's just a fun scene to watch in addition to the basic pre- uh, premise information that it gives you. Mm-hmm. And him going over to see his commanding officer actually introduces what I would consider the first of the antagonists of the film. In a simple line, close the door. <laughs> because the antagonist is the environment. One of the primary antagonists in The Thing from Another World is actually our world, specifically that Arctic environment. It plays a key role through the entire thing, and it is constantly a an enemy to the humans attempting to do what they're doing. It is an enemy they know, and an enemy they have weapons prepared for. Blankets, heaters, buildings. They've got things ready. But the fact that it is a threat is always there. And while it seems silly having this commanding officer constantly hounding people to close the door because of how cold it gets, that's such a powerful line in later context that rewatching it, it gets me excited because it, it's, a, it's a villain intro in a weird way. I like that. That's interesting. And I, I think I just called him a colonel. I think it was actually a general who was running this base and uh, was... Um commanding officer for uh, Hendry, but yeah, I thought you were going to say that he was an antagonist, and to some extent he was, in that the the military structure was not an antagonist, but it was one of the factors they had to deal with and was sometimes a frustration. But But your point about the environment being a significant antagonist, you're so right. And yeah, the general has this neatly appointed office and home there on the base. Inside, it's as much as uh, it, it's as much as it would have been anywhere in the country as he could make it. And yet, right outside that door, it's twenty-five below zero, and it's you know uh, uh, they're in uh, uh, the cold season in Anchorage, and um, yeah, the most and yeah, hu- he's yeah, he, the most human-lived place we have seen is immediately introduced as a thing constantly besieged by the reality outside the door. Yeah, you're right. It is the most normal, quote-unquote, normal environment is the inside of his uh, office and home, isn't it? And every time somebody goes in or out, they're barely through the door, and he's saying, close that door. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> which, which also I just love as a line, because that's, that's one of those lines you'll hear in your head later when you actually do have to do that in your everyday life. <laughs> You can hear the general calling out, close that door. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm head off to work and, like, close the door. I'm like, yeah, I should lock that thing. <laughs> and another tiny, tiny bit of dialogue that, that reveals character is we see that happening as people go come in and out as um, uh, the general is having this conversation with Captain Hendry. As Captain Hendry leaves, he's saying, you know, I'll report to you at such and such, and I'll close the door. Doesn't wait to be told. Not a big deal, but it's it, it sets him apart from the other people we've seen the general dealing with. And it also implies that he is he is not against kind of taking the legs out of someone in that sense. Right. He, he, there, there, is, there is a respect, but there is a tongue-in-cheek to the entire way he does that yeah. by preempting him. It deflates the general a little bit in a way that he can't complain about, so it's interesting. And yet, and, and yeah, the general seems to recognize how competent Hendry is as well. 
And the reason the general needed to talk to Hendry was because this Arctic expedition, the scientific expedition up north, they encountered something. There was a meteor fall and impact site that needed to be investigated. So the um, this Air Force captain and his crew, they're flying up there with people and supplies, and they're bringing the newspaper man who asks if they can come along, and they're showing a fairly amicable relationship between, uh, at least at the beginning, between uh, the military and the press. So he gets to come along. They're bringing you know, equipment and people and uh, um, a dog sled and all that. Kind of a packed... A packed cargo plane, not right. not uncomfortable, but pretty full. Right, and bringing up some supplies. And apparently this is a run that these guys have made before to going uh, uh, up to supply some of these uh, research stations. It's something almost a road trip movie about everyone going back and forth from the cargo area to the front, having their little conversations and making their little jokes. Right, and the plane too. It's another very claustrophobic environment. Where nobody gets their own space, nobody gets their own time to talk, there's all this overlap. And they're used to that, they work there as a team, but it really puts us right there with them. Mm -hmm. And even the camera work is a little tighter in than you'd expect on some of these things. It's a little closer because of that. And that it's building that tension early, cinematography-wise, that it needs to use later. But the fact that the the cameras in the front of the plane are on these two slightly odd angles. One, I think, is a little low compared to you'd usually think of where to place it. It's almost in someone's lap in some ways. And it's all kind of tight in. It feels like someone actually did mount a camera inside this place instead of this being a little cockpit set that they've pulled back a little bit of a soundstage from. This feels this feels like you're in there. Yeah, it's like, this is already crowded, and now we're in there, and it's even more crowded. Mm-hmm. And they get up to this um, this Arctic station, and they meet, as cast of characters, one of the chief um, among them is uh, Dr. Carrington, who's the head research scientist there. And he's interested in, in getting their help in investigating this uh, uh, this impact site from whatever it was that fell. They also meet um, uh, Nikki who is a woman that Captain Hendry has a little bit of history with. They met, they, when she was down in Anchorage, they seem to have a good time. There's a lot of, of, of romantic sparring uh, verbally between them. And the fact that they have this back and forth, there's this like, it's you, and this back and forth immediately about this drinking interaction they had. And we only are hearing snippets from two sides as to what was going on. And that right there sets so much up because it's, it's this immediate battle of wits that leaves everyone at a, a, a nice stalemate, I'd call it. Right. They are, they are evenly matched in terms of how quick they are, in terms of what their senses of humor are like. They can, everybody else, certainly Hendry's crew, can see how great they are together even more readily than they can themselves. Right. Just, the, just the, the respect the rest of them show her immediately has kind of a, like, we're gonna give you a respect that is slightly related to the amount of respect we give him on this level because of how you two are so immediately <laughs> interacting. And I appreciated that. Yeah. So now we've got this small group of military people and this group of scientists. And Nikki Nicholson, she's not a scientist herself. I think she's kind of the office manager, so to speak, an administrative assistant to the 
uh, to Dr. Carrington. She writes most of the notes, it seems. Right, yeah. She helps keep keep their logs and, and all of that. And But now they've got the, the, the research team, including Nikki, and the, the Air Force personnel, and the newspaper guy, all in this station. And they need to go investigate this, uh, this impact site. And before they do, Carrington shows Hendry why it is so interesting. It's not just a meteor fall, because meteors don't change direction. And this did before it landed, yeah, this was, before it crashed. It was falling, and then it went straight up, and then it fell again. If you were to put these things in just a line, okay, something falls. The moment it zigzags that one time, this is not normal. And it's another good job of them. They, they tell us a certain amount, but they also show us information and let us figure it out while Hendry is figuring out what's weird about this. They pace it with the pictures just enough so that we can feel as quick as him without it making him feel slower. So they know that this is important, and it's 40-some miles away, the impact site. So they load the supplies they need for this investigation, and they load the, uh, the research crew and the military crew into the airplane and fly off to, uh, to the site. And what they find is awfully interesting. This giant streak of something hitting, and a large, a large area of ice. Right. With a and tiny bit of mouse to camp. Yeah, they land, and in the middle of this ice, and they determine that something really, really hot impacted here. It melted all this snow, which then reformed into ice rather quickly because of the, uh, the temperatures. So there's this glassy ice plane that you can kind of see through, not quite, not quite, and this metal fin emerging from it, like the tallest point on whatever it is that's now under all of this ice. And it's at kind of an angle into the, the ice from the way it landed, but there's something immediate about that tiny prop fin. They don't, it's just this really, really smooth design, this... It's not one-piece construction, but it's got this... It, it looks hydroformed in terms of mechanical engineering, but they do it in such a way that doesn't feel right somehow. Right. Looking at it today, you can look at it and say, you know, that kind of looks like the tail fin from an advanced aircraft, like you know, a stealth aircraft or something like that. And I think, obviously, they were going for something like an aircraft tail fin, but... That was a lot more advanced than any aircraft in 1951, yeah. the way it's portrayed. And they're not sure what the material is, so they're looking to take samples. I do, like, I do like the take a sample, and you just see this guy with a metal file just start running the file <laughs> on this thing. And that's one of the few instances where I wish the sound editing had more of an unbearable screech to that. Because I'm just <laughs> imagining what this must sound like. Oh gosh, you're right. <laughs> And this great little visual, when they're, they're, they can see enough of it that uh, below the ice that they kind of tell the edge of where this object ends, and they're just looking at pieces of it, so they have everybody spread out. And go to everybody, spread out and go to the farthest, spread out and go to the farthest edge that you can of what you can see of this, uh, this object. And it's watching this crowd of people just kind of meander around for a moment. And then, not talking to each other, not gesturing to each other directly, looking all down at the floor, neatly arrange themselves into a circle. Right. It's well-blocked in that they just sort of, 
as you say, meander in the right direction until they're all standing with their arms spread out. And yeah, this is a giant circle with that uh, control surface fin in the middle of it. And it's, it is so brilliantly unnerving. Even if you know what's coming, even if you can see it coming from a mile away, it is just the, the, the silence of it, the the they're they're cross talking like we're talking about. Everyone's having their own. I see something here. Those are something over here. It's not quiet, but it's all commentary out to the environment. No one's responding or calling to each other the same way. So it's this pile of voices, all starting to chatter and going to their edges, and growing silent as they realize what's happening. Right. You see the impact of what they've just discovered hitting them. And now suddenly all of the idle and joking talk about flying saucers we've heard on the trip there in the airplane and all this, suddenly it's not a joke anymore. And suddenly this starts to get more serious and you see Captain Hendry start to get more serious. Now we have an important mission. I'm the ranking officer here. He starts telling people what to do. They start following him and he's got a plan and they start, uh, they start following it. And much as he likes the newspaper guy, you're not going to radio in any stories from my airplane because we need approval before anything like this is uh, is released from an Air Force operation. And this is now an Air Force operation. Mm-hmm. The moment that becomes real, the newspaper guy is, and he always see, he's always very upset verbally, but he's well it's well portrayed as being more invested in the story to some extent. Like he is annoyed highly annoyed that he's not getting to report this now and verbal about that but every moment that he's still here the story he has gets bigger and so as long as there's still story he will eventually report he seems somewhat okay and yeah i think you're right and he understands that the air force guys have their reasons for for putting the brakes on the reporting and but it's his job to push to get information out as soon as he can so you know they're they each know that their job is to be the antagonist to the other in terms of secrecy versus freedom of the press. And uh, so that's well done. And something I want to point out, this is 1951. This is only four years after the uh, incident at Roswell. Oh, wow. This was current stuff at the time. Okay. This idea of flying saucers and the idea of flying saucers, are they from somewhere else? In outer space, were they drawn here by our atomic bomb testing? Is it the Russians who have that far greater technology than we have? Should we be afraid for that reason, or because we're being invaded, or is it peaceful visitors from another world? So many possibilities, and this was all very current and very real, as, as, at least as a set of questions to anybody making and watching this movie at the time. That underlying tension definitely plays in because of how everyone immediately snaps to attention once they realize what's going on. And immediately it's, you know, dig this thing out. It's check the area. It's cut down, cut down the communication areas if we have to. So it's only the, the pipeline of who needs to know what, when. There is a, a readiness to deal with this because of that environment. Right. And that is part of what leads them both in the right direction and astray. And over on the science side, Dr. Carrington, he is enthralled and enraptured as soon as they start to get a hint that this may be from somewhere else. 
how much can we learn from somebody who was able to travel across space to visit Earth? He's just amazed and and energized by this idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, and of course the the Air Force wants to get this extracted so that they can study it some more. There's no way that they can dig through or drill through the ice in this big area to get at this. So, as they say, standard operating procedure for, for digging something out through ice, time to use thermite. I don't know if that was actually supposed to be standard operating procedure. And it says something that I have tried to look up, what standard operating procedure for the Air Force or for ice-based missions in the Arctic would have been in that time frame. And I cannot find clear ideas as to whether or not thermite was standard operating procedure. But I can say for certainty, apparently one of the secrets to space travel is build your ship out of magnesium. Yeah, because things don't go too well when they use the thermite. Oh my goodness. And this is, <laughs> this is, this is, does not go right in a way that would almost warrant a trombone horn in terms of how it goes. <laughs> There's something in my head that always has that tacked on. Yeah, the thermite does melt the ice. And the ship. Yeah, and the ship melts and bursts into flames when, you know, apparently the fuel was hit or something. So there's nothing left of this flying saucer that they uh, they found under the ice. It's the fact that there's nothing left. I mean, standardly, thermite would melt metal, but that would still leave you a liquefied metal that you could at least pull and extract for testing, you'd contaminate a large amount of it, and you might alloy a few things that you couldn't tell separately otherwise, but you wouldn't disintegrate it the way they describe this to be. Yeah, it seems to me that it wasn't necessarily the thermite that did most of the damage to the structure of the ship, the ship itself. It's the fact that the thermite worked as a, an igniter to touch off whatever this thing is powered by, mm -hmm. and that's what destroyed it. And maybe it, it destroyed most of it and melted a deeper hole so the rest of it is not recoverable. And that, that would make sense. I mean, we know that the metal itself is not reacting to oxygen, and I'm getting way too deep into yeah. this at this point. But right. this says how much I love this <laughs> already, that I've spent this much time trying to think of how the ship that they melted was made because I know it melted. And that's the only information I have to go off of it. So they've got no uh, no flying saucer, even though they found one. They They destroyed it trying to get it out. They've got nothing to go back with. Except, they find in, uh, in the ice a creature, a being, a, a large, tall, humanoid-looking thing. Not human-looking, but at least it's got a head and two arms and two legs, and it's frozen solid in a block of ice. This must have been one of the uh, people from the Flying Saucer. Cute newspaper man ribbing them about using thermite to get him out, but... <laughs> right. They don't. Instead, they, don't. they use axes. I like the fact that the newspaper man picks up an axe and helps <laughs> chop him out of there. That is one of those wonderful little background bits. So, they come back to the research station with a big, big block of ice, inside which is a uh, flying saucer passenger or pilot. And everyone is starting to get more and more nervous on this. The, the the moment that they're looking at they're looking at this thing and noticing how big he is and that it's it's in there and like everyone is getting very very tense already because the ship is one thing the the pilots the passengers are another right and having brought this uh this flying saucer pilot back with them to their place 
And he's obviously not human. He's like eight or nine feet tall, and he's got spiky bits on his joints and all this stuff. But they're they're not sure what to do with him. So Captain Hendry is essentially, let's keep him frozen. They So they have like a utility room, and they break one of the windows, so the Arctic temperatures come in and keep this block of ice frozen. And let's not do anything else until we get ex- instructions from higher up in the chain of command. Problem with that is there are storms coming in. They can't get any messages out to the higher-ups in the chain of command. They got information to them about what we found at the impact site, and that's the last transmission they can get out from their small transmitter to be received by the, uh, the Air Force Base in Anchorage. They can, for a little while, get information from Anchorage, which does things like instruct them to use thermite to melt out the flying saucer, so at least he's off the hook for that, and keep a lid on the newspaper stuff for now. But uh, they're kind of on their own. They're isolated. Mm-hmm. And to look at this once as the story of the three parties in question, the humans, the environment, and the thing. This is, that, that scene in the, the warehouse, the storeroom, is so intriguing because it immediately sets a, a first move by the humans in terms of this, this power struggle. And that is, we have found an unknown party to this continuing back and forth. We don't know which side they are on. And we are immediately going to trust the fact that the one enemy we are currently fighting has, in fact, incapacitated this unknown party. We're going to trust our enemy to keep this other person, this other creature in stasis. The fact that the way he goes over and breaks the window, everyone's like, how are We've got this thing on ice. It's like, and he goes over and he breaks the window with such, like, just as he's talking, just boom. There is something of the, I trust the, I trust what this would do to do it to him as much as it would to us. Right. The weather is an enemy that I understand. So we can use its behavior. Exactly. So you're right. He just, he, he says, we'll keep it here. Tells one of his guys to break the window. His guy breaks the window. Not a second thought. Mm-hmm. And it's immediately like, we'll fight the enemy we know and we'll find out who this guy is later. Right. And that is immediately sets up part of that that three part interaction that I think of this movie as. I like that. To some extent, you can also say that the the scientists and the military people are on different sides, but I don't know that you can really go that far. Carrington is definitely, and we'll we'll see as we talk more about the movie, is not on the side of everybody else, right? But he's just got different values and different motivations. Yeah, he's, he's, he's an interesting character overall. So, naturally, again, this might be a short enough movie if they just load the uh, alien onto the plane and fly him back to Wright-Patterson or someplace. But no, he gets melted. Through the most... Oh, oh goodness, that whole thing. It's, you know, don't worry. We've, we're going to put one guard here the entire time, and I've got an electric heating blanket. And I'll stay warm, even though the room's cold. Yeah, and so he'll the, stay frozen. So the guard won't won't freeze to death. And then it's changing of the guard, and the next guy has a a flight suit on, so he's already insulated. But he doesn't want to keep seeing this thing's face in the ice, so he tosses this blanket he finds lying around on it, and we follow the cord to see that it's still plugged in <laughs> and on. And of course, a few hours later, when he's fallen asleep, the ice has melted. And uh, he doesn't last too long. I think he's, does he, uh, I think he makes it out of the room. 
yes, not, because he he gets he was, startled by it. He right. pulls his weapon, fires multiple shots into the thing, and flees the room. And the shots didn't stop it. They go through the beast, the thing, but not. It doesn't slow. It doesn't flinch. It kind of it's it's surprised when a hole is put through it, but it's not wounded in the way you'd expect it to be. So he goes and tells the the captain and the others about what has happened, and and they go back to the storeroom all armed and ready to do battle if they need to. But the thing has broken out through the window and has escaped into the night. And they see from a distance as it's like struggling against the sled dogs as they attack him and vice versa. Yeah, lot, lots of yeah, lots of dog yelp sound effects added in here of, as it fights these things. Yeah. Which, it gets really sad. Oh, I, I do want to also point out some very good facial acting when he's there telling everybody as he's in a panic. And everyone goes from the like, oh, you're kidding us. Oh, you're not kidding us. <laughs> Splash water on him. Okay, calms down. Tell us what's going on. And, you know, I think it's important, at least it seemed important to me, to see that scene from a distance of the thing fighting with the dogs. Because, really, now there are some assumptions that could be made in an early 50s movie like this. Of course, the guy from another planet's going to be a bad guy. But... The fact that the dogs don't like him and the fact that he fights against the dogs physically makes that clear. Yeah, this is not a scientific peaceful visitor. This is somebody who's come, the first thing he does is he attacks our dogs. Not a good guy. Mm-hmm. And very clearly, though, interestingly enough, the fact that it's not... He, he, he fights the dogs, but he doesn't just walk through and knock the dogs aside with the flick of his wrist. He fights the dogs. They've grabbed onto him. We see flat. We see these little tiny moments of him actually fighting with the dogs. It is a conflict, right? That implies that he is strong. He the fact that he doesn't succumb to these dogs or the elements is that he is strong. He is formidable, but it's that he isn't an invincible enemy, right? I'm gonna uh, to, he, to pull. Uh, oh, go ahead. Now he, uh, you're right. He um he takes on this whole pack of dogs, but it's it's a struggle. And he succeeds, he survives this, but not without cost. He loses an arm. There is, there is a concept for tabletop DMs that I've heard that comes to mind in this, and that is, never stat Cthulhu. <laughs> if you give it stats, your players will think, I can fight it and kill it. Right. It's Even if it's unlikely, they'll want to fight it and kill it. The moment he fights with the dogs and loses an arm, but still makes it out of the fight, he has stats. Right. They are strong stats. They are scary stats. But there's numbers, and numbers could be overcome in that metaphorical sense. Right. So from there, and I don't know that we don't know that we need to go through every scene sequentially, but from there it becomes this interesting three-way cat and mouse game. On the one hand, you've got this thing out there. That we it it at least might be dangerous, so we need to know where it is and contain it, and make sure that we're protected from it. We've got Doctor Carrington, who, when they recover this arm that was torn off of the thing, studies it, learns more about it, and becomes more and more fascinated, becomes a fan of this creature, 
Mm-hmm. Because they discover it's organic, but it's not animal. It's more like vegetable. This is intelligent enough to fly around in flying saucers and visit Earth. Giant humanoid vegetable. Well, welcome to the other title for this movie. Space Carrot Fights You for the Freezer. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it is, a, it is a plant. And they find on this arm that it's responding as it thaws. It's got this, you know, sap-like blood. It, they find seeds in its fingertips. Right. And, oh, and they also find a very interesting thing, that it responded to blood. Right, that's what kind of wakes it up is uh, one of the, the dog's blood got on it during the fight, and as that thawed out, it ingested the blood and started to come back to life. And Carrington is fascinated by this recovery power, by the idea of something evolving to higher intelligence, as he assumes, without the emotion that animals would necessarily develop, with the pure logic of plants. Now, I don't know why something that's plant-based if it evolved to intelligence, wouldn't also evolve to the kind of consciousness that would include emotions. I think Carrington's making quite a leap there. That's the thing. Carrington's immediate, like, over the course of this little bit, we see the start of the momentum he has, which is that he goes from what I would call in interested scientist to complete fanboy. And he goes into... Uh, was almost a headcanon mode as he jumps from concept to concept about what this could mean about this creature as he gets into this fervor about each of the state each of like the things they find out about it and every little bit isn't a new piece of information but a multiplier to the energy he has and this excitement as he paces the room and talks louder and talks faster and is excited. Imagine what this thing could know. You must let us study it. We must get this thing on our side, Captain. Ah! Right. He gets all riled up over this. And you watch as some of the same clear way he was describing something when we were just looking at the photos of the meteor falling actually starts to fall away. He starts skipping steps. Like he's moving too fast for his own regulated consistency of mind. Right, he drops the scientific method completely when it comes to these assumptions he's making, and he's, he is so invested in these, this idea that this visitor from another world must be so intelligent and so unemotional that it must be here for a peaceful scientific purpose and be above any petty conflict. He gets so invested in this thing as uh, being super intelligent and unemotional that he gets increasingly emotional and foregoing more and more of his intelligence. While the the military guys and the rest of the cohort there at the station are going through the station trying to find the thing. They discover that it went to the greenhouse, which is the only place around where there's soil or anything might grow. It also, like, drained of blood one of the sled dogs. Oh no, puppy! And so it's looking for soil and it's looking for blood. Mm -hmm. And that also says that while it is not as hurt by the enemy of the weather, it shows the fact that it is not immune to it. We've seen it's frozen. We saw the fact that it had needed to thaw. 
it could last outside longer than our human characters could. But it still wants in. It still wants inside and wants what's in that building to keep it safe. Right. It's as if it can be susceptible to the physical effects, but in the meantime, it does not feel pain or discomfort or inconvenience from them. Mm-hmm. Either it can operate or it can't. And, and now that it is hunting the dogs and breaking its way into the building, it is definitely antagonistic to the humans. And now we have three, three, uh, a, a three-way duel here, everyone drawing guns on each other. Right, because meanwhile, Carrington has taken some of those seeds they found on the arm and planted them, and he's feeding them plasma from the medical stores. He's essentially making this little box garden of new aliens just because he thinks we can learn from from them and they must be superior. And how can something that superior really be a danger to us? These little tiny plants are some of the most amazing props because I because they must have like inside the the display case of these this you know wooden box with this little garden on top. They've got some sort of pump or something because these little tiny prop plants are swelling. And deflating just a little, like they're breathing. Right, it's the simple effect, just with the lighting and that little air bladder effect. It is chilling to see. When you uh, add the, the photography and the music, it's wonderful. I want one of those little desktop USB toys, <laughs> but of one of these plants that just goes in and out just a little. That seems so fun in one of those weird, creepy ways. That would be great. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> it says something though that I might be trying to be carrying in there just a tiny bit, but no, I know. I just think that's the most amazing prop. Yeah, and we do get to see the thing at one of these points when they, I believe, they open a door and find him behind it. I mean, like when they realize he's in there, but that's around this time, I guess. So yeah, we start to see more and more of the thing. Previously, we had only seen him in a blurry form in the ice or in the distance as he fought the dogs. Played by James Arness, by the way, in, in boots and things to make him even taller and, and makeup and, and kind of a spacesuit sort of thing, I suppose. It, it's, the, it's when they open the door and we see him full for just one moment, and they slam the door shut right after. <laughs> yes. There's something about that just... Everyone's all crouched and ready, and they open the door and, ha! Like, he doesn't even say anything, but there's something of this, like, hi kind of energy there. Rawr! Close his door. <laughs> hand. Now, why a super intelligent carrot from another planet would have two legs, two arms, and a head, and wear clothes, I don't know. But they don't bother asking those questions in 1951 sci-fi movies. Because unlike some movies, they don't... Uh, some more modern movies, too, I would say. They don't suggest any reason why it may have wanted to or had time to adapt to our environment. It's just he's a man from outer space. Of course he's shaped like a man. So we start to see more of the uh, the alien creature, and they start to figure out, well, bullets don't hurt it any more than a tree is killed by a you know, bullet going into it. So, and, and this is one of those things where, where Nikki is the voice of, of intelligence and reason, and it's not one of these she's saying things and she doesn't understand the importance of what she's saying. She is a smart person. She understands the importance of what she's saying, and she's smart enough to put it in simple terms. Yeah. They're saying, you know, how do you fight a potato? How do you kill a carrot? Yeah, how do you... And she says, boil them. Boil what it, you, mash it, fry it, yeah. make it. Heat! Heat's right. the answer. So they think, yeah, let's fight this thing with fire. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, I do also like the fact that when they noticed when they when they opened the door, he has two arms again. Right. Draining yeah. the dog was enough for him to regrow an arm, mm-hmm. which is terrifyingly fast. Right. You've got to like either take him out entirely or you might as well not. Mm-hmm. This is some fast regen. But the fact that they realize fire would work, they start making Molotovs. They start figuring they start um figuring out how to burn this thing. Yeah, they've got plenty of kerosene. And they've got, like, buckets of kerosene and Molotov cocktails and things to uh, to ignite it with. And this is a dangerous thing to do in one of the few rooms that you've got protecting you from the deadly weather outside. But they do. And that's where there's this first big fight scene between our humans and the uh, uh, the alien creature as they set it on fire and they set half the room on fire as they struggle with it. And, but it escapes. Yeah. I mean, this thing comes into the room because we've learned this thing is is eating creatures with blood. And a dog is one thing, but a person's going to be a meal. Right. And it bursts in the room with this, you know, hi, I'm here to kill you. And then once fire starts happening, it immediately is like, you're not worth the trouble. I'm out the window. <laughs> now, did they use blood to lure it or something like that to I set a trap for it? they just using sound. Oh. It's, it's like most of them right, in a room, right. they're making all this noise as they get ready. And then they're realizing, oh, it hears this. Oh, so they're it the bait. Hears, they're the bait. And I don't even, it was a little earlier than they hoped. Because right. they were still moving stuff around when it came in the room. Yep. That's part of why it has this freneticism, because it's a plan, a trap sprung early oh, in that sense. right, right. Because they're still getting stuff out of the way, they're moving tables and such, and then they hear these clump, clump kind of movements outside, if I remember. They're, that entire f- thing is rather fast-paced. In some ways, they've got to get to this conflict point right. through the yeah. movie pacing-wise for the film, because it's stretched out its opening to give us this wonderful buildup we were so praising earlier. Some of these middle sections get a little compressed, and they could almost be reorganized in terms of order. As long as people at the end have all the information they've got at the end, it's not quite that same order of A to B. It's As with a lot of stories, in the middle, there's a bunch of boxes that need to be checked, and you just have to make that process as, as exciting as possible, which I think they do. Mm-hmm. But there's but, like, what is there, like five of them in this room? Some right. with, with kerosene buckets and Molotov cocktails, and they, they turn off the lights when they know this thing's coming. This thing opens the door, and suddenly it's a wash with flame. Right. And that's the all, all the lighting of this scene as they toss kerosene, and it gets brighter. And the silhouette of this thing in the flames gets clearer, and it jumps out the window. And then it's cleaning up the mess. And the immediate, we won! Oh, snap! Put out the fire! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's, it is exciting visually if for a black-and-white movie, this fire... This uh, hand-to-hand combat with this big group in the middle of a conflagration is amazing. And something else that's happening throughout this movie is we've got this research station, which has a finite amount of space, and this is our protection from the deadly weather outside. And we keep sacrificing or losing pieces of it. We've lost the that first room when we broke the windows to let the weather in. We lost the greenhouse, I think, earlier. We now have set this room on fire, and even though we were able to put the fire out, it's got a broken window in it. The area of safe space gets smaller and smaller, and everything gets more claustrophobic as we go. And they've had a nice large cast. 
But as the movie progresses, more of them are in a shot at a time every single time. Right. The, it started out with one man in a guard room interacting with it. Now we've got a fight with five people in a room and two of them getting injured. Mm-hmm. And that is the, 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 the escalation of that number is another way they show that because even if the, the room is the same room we've seen, by putting more people in it, it's, it's smaller. Because there's less per person. And that is part of how that builds for sure. So they continue trying to track this creature through the station and find out where it is. And one of the ways they're tracking it is it is radioactive. Oh, the Geiger counter. And so they've got a Geiger counter. Uh, the movie Alien owes a lot to this. The way they're using the Geiger counter to find where this m- enemy they, ca- they cannot see must be somewhere and sweeping the place with the Geiger counter. That's so much like the detectors that they they rigged up in the movie Alien and that the military had in the the sequel Aliens. So much like that, where there's this high tension as we use a a whole cluster of people staring at the one guy with the instrument who might be able to find it. And there is something so wonderfully man-made UI tension about beep, beep, beep. As that audible sensor gets more frantic and the tension of all the characters and the viewer rises along with it. Yeah, there's the, oh my gosh, oh no, we might find it. And oh no, we might not find it. Like we we're we're in horrible situation no matter what. There's there is nothing that you'd like better than a slow and a slow regular beep in a specific direction. Almost heartbeat like. Right. That's the only safe line. And we get the false alarms as they get near the geologic sample room, which in- can includes a bunch of samples of uranium ore, and that's uh, setting off the Geiger counter as well. But those uh, those scenes, just before like the final act, when they're doing that searching, a lot of great tension there. Mm. And we do lose two guardsmen to it. We so do, we know yeah. it's back at full power after this firefight. It has drained two full people of blood. Right, so the stakes are high, the, the numbers of our good guys are diminishing, and it's getting more powerful. And they confront Carrington. Carrington's even more frantic. How did you... Well, you fought this thing. How could you? Why did you hurt it? No, it knows so much more. It's so much better than us. We no. can learn so much. Yeah, they're like starting to already need to like you know, put, corn, put him in his room. Don't right. let him out, because you're getting too intense here. And it's also learning. So it's learning to do things like knock out their heat because it knows that they're going to die from the cold before it does. And then it's got, I guess, hemoglobin popsicles to enjoy. <laughs> That's just a phrase. I'm not ready. <laughs> I was not prepared for that phrase. But yeah, it, it, it starts leveraging the fight of, between these three forces and it starts leveraging the, the weather against our humans, almost allying with it. Oh, yeah, in the same way that the humans were at the beginning. Let's uh, let's let the weather help protect us from this thing by keeping it in a block of ice. Now it's saying, I'll let the weather help me by helping it kill all these pesky uh, humans. Mm-hmm. And we've gone from a, a... I mean, the initial use of a gun aside, we went from very early use of fire in terms of this, you know, just throwing flame at the thing and tossing kerosene at it. To later plans, I believed involved like trying to soak something. There's something about like trying to get it with fire again, and they were realizing they're running low. 
but they go through right. these like evolutionary stages of their tactic in terms of how do we approach this thing with fire? How do we make this work? Right, because they may be military people, but they weren't set up here for sent up here for combat. They've got their sidearms, but not much else. So I, I, I think it's a flare that they consider. Oh, that's right. That's what they use to in the in the, in the fight in the the barracks room when everything gets caught on fire. They use a flare gun. They they throw buckets of kerosene on it and use a a berry pistol to set it off. Mm-hmm. So now they've gone from gun to projectile fire. And then what's the next step? They figure, use electricity. Nice little touch, though, before I forget, when they, in, back in that fight with the kerosene, when they're using the, uh, the flare gun, the one guy who's got the flare gun, they, somebody asks him if he knows how to use it, and he talks about having seen it in, in some Western movie. The Western movie they mention is a famous one by Howard Hawks. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> I did not, uh, yeah. not having seen it, I did not know that bit, but that is, that's some fun cross-reference. I like that. But yeah, they, they, they try to evolve their approach to fighting this thing, but they're limited by the resources they have, which is not much. Mm-hmm. But they've got, like, some, some fencing wire, I think, and electrical generator. Yeah, they still have some electricity, and it's, it's more and more important because it's knocked out their heating system. They gather everybody who's left in the generator room with an electric heater, and they start to create a trap in one of the hallways. With a plate of metal above and a plate of metal, uh, of metal wiring below and wires hooked up against the walls. If they, they can get it to stand on this spot, they'll fry it. And this is such a wonderful, like, setting up the trap. There's something a little oddly Scooby-Doo about this whole thing. What with the open a door and the monster is there and close the door. And this running back and forth from room to room. And the setting up a trap to catch it at the end. I, there is a Scooby-Doo vibe in that sense, but instead of revealing it to be Old Man Jenkins, no, no, this is Spaceman Jenkins, and Spaceman Jenkins must die or we will. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, that's, some of those preparation scenes, there are things about that that remind me of some Keith scenes in, uh, well, in the movie Star Wars, what you probably call A New Hope, where there is, like, the bad guy that's going to kill us all is on its way, the Death Star. We're laying a trap for it. In the meantime, there's all this other activity while, for, while we're getting all the remaining people from the station into their weather gear and into the generator room. There's all this stuff happening, and yet we can follow it because of that quick overlapping dialogue that they're giving us once again. As we hear crosstalk of one person who knows the electrical wiring telling people what to do and other people discussing what this plan will do to the creature if we can get it. And how do we deal with this other, with the fact that the, the scientist is going out of his mind at this point, and putting him in a room with everyone else is a bad idea, and things like that. But yeah, they're, they're keeping that pacing, that, that communication open. That is almost the defining feature of the human team on this. The ones that are communicating with each other are the ones that are working together. The scientist who isolated off to the, his own and started rambling, not to everyone else, but to himself, is the one that is not with the team. Right. And when he does start to tell the team stuff, he doesn't talk with them back and forth the same way. He talks a large amount at them. And you can contrast that to another character in his communication style. There's a member of Captain Hendry's team. I think he's a corporal, 
he's kind of the guy who takes care of the rest of the airplane while the pilot and the co-pilot and the, the navigator are doing their jobs. And he's the one who keeps coming to Captain Hendry, having noticed something. This is something we need to deal with. I have a suggested solution. And he tells it to Captain Hendry in a way that eventually gets Captain Hendry, or Captain Hendry eventually says, let's do X, Y, and Z, which is exactly the solution the corporal came up with. And then the corporal says, you're right, we'll do that. And after that happens a few times, like, you know, people are getting spooked and you know, they're at the early on, you know, I think that you know, having people on guard alone with this creature uh, for four hours at a time might be too much. Maybe we should cut that down. Eventually, Captain Henry says, yeah, let's uh, cut it down to two hours guard shifts. I'll relieve so-and-so in a little bit. You're right, Captain. After a few of those, you realize that Captain Henry knows exactly what's going on, and he listens to the advice of this corporal, takes it, and says, don't tell me I'm right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But yeah, it's the exact opposite of the, I'm going to talk at you because I am the smartest person here, with the possible exception of the carrot, (laughs) uh, that Carrington does. Uh, That is a wonderful sentence. The smartest person in the room, except for the carrot. So, yeah, they lay this uh, electrical trap and plan to lure the thing down the hallway because it has to be in the right spot. And, of course, the tension is heightened at the end when someone cuts off the electricity. It's Carrington, of course. Of course. You put him in the room with the gi- with the, the generator. It felt kind of like, even if I hadn't seen the movie before, there's something a little bit like, no, duh, why'd you do that about this? This is one of those oversight moments on our our heroic team this does lead into two of my favorite moments of this oh yeah both right one right after another okay the first of them is carrington's plea to the monster oh right when he runs out to talk to the monster just before they get it into the the kill zone of their trap Mm -hmm. and he runs past everyone and he gives this same sort of impassioned speech of the you're so wise just tell us what you know and such And in a split second, he is smacked by the monster and crumples like a piece of wet cardboard. (laughs) Right. It's like the monster stares at him in confusion for about 15 seconds, then smacks him out of the way. Like, why is my Pop-Tart talking? Like, (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, there is something about watching him attempt to switch sides in this conflict and be denied. Mm -hmm. And it's not denied in a way that says that what he was saying was wrong. This monster could be really intelligent. This monster could be big and powerful and part of a big group and entity and such. It just says that his presumption of its intent is wrong. Right. You can be, things can be smart and not friendly. Exactly. And the the pause there, the pause, if it, if he ran up to it and it hit him before he finished talking, it wouldn't have been the same as him getting to say this entire thing, beat, beat, smack. Because there is that moment where, oh, is this going to be a very different movie than I thought? And it's going to say, finally, someone I can talk to. Mm -hmm. But that's not completely out of the realm of possibility, as you see it staring at him for those few seconds. There is a tiny little break changes the hubris of Carrington in such a clear way. And the fact that it is not a gruesome or a, a drawn-out death, it is a rather abrupt one. Right. <laughs> Says so much. And it turns out it's not a death. He's, he's injured. 
but yeah. he turns out to be okay later on. And that's a, a little coda that they add at the very end there, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the good guy's trap works, and they fry the uh, vegetable alien. The second of my favorite scenes, though, yeah? is the wrench toss. As the creature walks along the dirt path beside the wooden walkway they've got, and this w- almost call and response of the, we've got to be on that railing, cut to the monster not being on the, r- on the, the wooden path. Our hero slides his wrencher along the path, and the monster just hops with two legs onto the path and walks forward again. Monster has to jump somewhere, he jumps onto the wooden path. There is something, right after, right after proving that this monster might in fact be just as intelligent as Carrington said, it shows that this thing is just as dumb as the rest of us in terms of what he'll do. And, you know, reflex is reflex. Ha ha, you thought you'd injure me with your wrench, but I have dodged it. I am smart. <laughs> I am carrot. <laughs> Oh no, oh no, I just realized that this is Humans Kill Groot, the movie. <laughs> and now I'm sad. Oh, wow. You're I right. just realized the saddest thing of his, oh no. <laughs> oh man, there's some crossover fiction for you. Oh yeah. He's actually, this is actually a, a, a renegade escaping from Groot's planet, huh? But there's something about that, and there's it is simultaneously so silly of this slider wrench and watch the thing jump, but it's also so dramatic as the one last bit that would keep this from working is solved in such a smooth little slide. Right. And the fact that it isn't our captain who does that, it's one of his guys. It is one co-pilot. of it is his it is the co-pilot. I like that fact that it's <laughs> there's not one person who's always the hero of every moment. As as the group gets tighter and gets more on board with each other they start becoming one character in some ways to my mind maybe that's just me but they start becoming this group entity in that sense you know i i don't think i can agree with that because i think that the fact that they are all individuals working together is very significant to i think one of the likely themes of this movie okay because any monsters from outer space type movie in the early 50s there are, I mean, a lot of critics today and since between then and now have assumed that it's an allegory for the Western world versus the Eastern Bloc, democracy versus communism. And I think there's probably something to that. I think it's a little facile to just say that's what this movie is about. Because I think there are other themes about science versus the unknown. But to the extent that it is anything like that, democracy versus communism. On the one hand, you've got a unthinking but in- an unfeeling but intelligent creature that can easily reproduce into lots and lots of other creatures and take over the entire world because it is intelligent but mindless in some way. And on the other hand, you've got a group of individuals each with their own personalities, each with their own strengths working together under a a leader who nevertheless listens to the people he's leading to preserve their way of life and their and and preserve their lives i think that you need to have you need to recognize those good guys as a lot of individuals in order to set them against the the mindlessness of the vegetable alien invader i had never considered it that way I have to rewatch this thing just to look at it from that perspective now. <laughs> huh. 
but I can definitely see what you're saying. I, I always think of them and like the unity they've got as a unit and the fact that they come together under this one banner almost of a, of a plan to be kind of this uniting concept of them that turns them into this group working together. But the fact oh. that they are a group working together of individuals is the point. Right. I, yeah. I can understand what you're saying there. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. They, they show how well they are working together as a unit. Oh, that's very, very important. Uh, I, I can take it that step to treating the unit as a character, because it has to be built of these separate characters. And they really are all interesting separate characters with their own personalities. The jokes that the co-pilot's telling, the, the clever way of, um, of dealing with the captain that the corporal has, and so on. Absolutely. So, yeah, they, uh, they do fry the uh, alien invader. The final wrench in their plan fixed with a wrench. <laughs> and... Finally, then, metaphorically, the storm starts to let up as well, so they can finally get communications to and from the, their Air Force Base in Anchorage, which is like more or less uh, supporting the decisions they made, except for the, you know, preserve the, the alien specimen at all costs, except for preserving life or something like that. I forget the exact words. But uh, the, uh, the people in Anchorage had no idea what's been going down for the last 48 hours. And they finally get message out. They're finally getting communication, and they let the, and they let the newspaper man send out his message. Right. Because there's, the little bit that's come out means that there's piles of reporters back in Anchorage waiting on this. Right. They know something, maybe a flying saucer, has been found up there, and that's all they know. And a great final speech by our newspaper guy talking into the radio to all the other reporters. It's not even as if he demanded to be connected with his editor to get an exclusive. He's trying to do his job by getting the word out there. Mm -hmm. I think he says, like, make sure that you credit me. And then he just starts going. Right. But his plea of watch the skies, of the, the things that have happened here today, but there may be more. Watch the skies. And he reports what happened in remarkable and concise detail and, uh, and well-written off the top of this character's head. For Carrington, he talks about the fact that Carrington is recovering from injuries sustained in battle, so he doesn't mention the fact that Carrington was switching sides or working against the people who were working against the alien. And he's even one of the other characters who says, you know, good for you, Scotty. Good of you not to... Uh, to report about the fact that Carrington went crazy and did the wrong thing. I, li- I liked that little bit, but it's a wonderful speech. That, yeah, and, and he describes how there was, you know, an interaction with a, with a creature that was threatening all of humanity, and it, it, I, I, gotta, I gotta find that again and pull that up, because that is, that is such a well, well-written summary. Not of the, a lot of the, the final state of the characters, but there's so much of the theming that gets put together in that one thing about the conflict overall. And we could talk a lot about the themes. We talked a little bit about the anti-communist theme that a lot of people read into this. I think there's a lot of just late 40s, early 50s. We're on the verge of a lot of stuff when it comes to science that is both incredibly promising and incredibly dangerous. There's the whole, the fact that there was this UFO flap going on, and that was the big unknown thing that some people were fascinated by, others were panicking about. Uh, there's a lot going on that informs this movie. I don't know that we can pick any one of those to say this is the driving idea behind the movie, and the whole thing is an allegory for this as opposed to that. But just as a concept, this 
this isolated environment with this contact with the unknown and this tension and uncertainty, it plays as a very nice a nice bed, a nice soil for for those sort of concepts to grow. So as you know, you've watched this movie a few times, and I certainly have. So maybe the answer to our first question is is fairly obvious, but what do you think, Ian? Um screen or no screen? Oh, this is a screen movie. And this is this is a screen movie where I say turn off the lights, get yourself some popcorn. Maybe if you really want to go crazy, and I have enjoyed this, this is why I always love watching it during the winter is turn down the thermostat a little. Being a little chilly actually is fun for this movie. It Maybe is. that's just me, but yeah. Yeah, that is fun. And and it is one of those movies where the more you can can uh, reproduce the theater experience, you know, don't and don't don't hit pause and uh, and all that unless you have to. But yeah, get your drink, get your popcorn, turn down the lights and just dive into this movie. Mm-hmm. So I I totally agree screen. I watch this movie probably at least once a year and uh, uh it it always shows me something new when I watch it. So, uh, yeah, that's a, a, a screen from both of us, as opposed to a, a no screen. And that uh, leaves our second question. Revi- little... Revive, reboot, or rest in peace? And that's a little bit of an odd one for this, because this is a, this is a reboot of, a, of the short story it's based on, but then it well, yeah, is also... It's an, it's an adaptation of the short story or the novella, Who Goes There? Mm-hmm. But then that same story has have other interpretations, and the other interpretations are also partially based on this movie to some extent. Yeah. This is not a thing that is on its own. It actually already is part of a, a lineage in that sense, and that's going to be, that's an interesting thing to factor for it. But if we look at how this movie portrayed it, that gives us something. So maybe rather than selecting from those three options, which one option is correct? It's worth something to look at each one of those options in turn. I would put aside the, you know, rest in peace. I think there's a lot to this. Other people have found stuff to do with this and its source material, that short story. So putting aside the rest in peace. Revive. Hmm. Revive would mean another part of the story or something else from which this is canon. And I don't know that that's ever been done. Would that be interesting? Is there somewhere they could go? If, if people are watching the skies, what if they see something? It makes me think that that would be interesting, but I don't want it to be immediately after. I want it. I would want it to be a revive that is like in the 80s. Or have it something later where the fact that this was a linchpin in history and an event that happened changes the way everyone prepares. The idea of a society that was that spent decades watching the skies like that radio announcement asked them to, and researching what happened here, and learning more, and maybe we see Carrington having come back from his his psychosis and being a source of information, or maybe he becomes this figure of example insanity but still is being mined for what he knows in some ways, but it takes time to filter out the crazy out of it. There's an interesting story there about how what we see happen there affects everywhere else, and then some sort of conflict or return, everyone has to respond again to it after those changes. It starts to get a little more Lovecraftian in that sense when you talk about the the wisdom that we might find within Carrington's craziness. 
and uh and this arctic setting one of the things about the the arctic and settings like that is things can stay frozen and waiting for a long time mm-hmm. and you know if, we, if we're not careful i'll start to talk for another hour and a half about uh the mountains of madness but yeah i would say that a revival that doesn't take place the next year but takes place a generation or two later and yet is clearly in the same continuity as the thing from another world that is an interesting idea if you want to if if you want one last bit to think about that aspect in order to raise the stakes these creatures came at least once and if if any of the other ones got information about what where it landed it knows that's a bad place to land what happens when one of these tries to land in the tropics only to find an entire humanity ready for it to show up. Oh. And now it's a battle for a place where it will thrive, but we're more ready. That's a conflict in an interesting environment. Yeah, and if you know, if you want to, if if you do want these to be an allegory, if it was an allegory for communism in the 1950s, uh we've got things like uh what's happening in the rainforests in South America. We've got the fact that those arctic environments are not so arctic anymore. Mm-hmm. A lot of interesting uh, contemporary issues that come up, not just as something for the story to comment on, but to drive that story. Oh, yeah. And an island in the right spot space could be just as isolating as the Arctic for some of the story beats, but differently environmental for the progress. Oh, so it comes down like in a, a Caribbean island? Yeah. And we need this family... With amazing rocket ships to save the world from it? <laughs> okay, we just created a whole other crossover, but I'm on this. <laughs> I am loving this concept. International rescue versus the thing from another world. Oh, yeah. The thing from another world getting roasted off of uh, Thunderbird <laughs> 2's jets as it launches is something I can get behind. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that there it would be interesting to see a revival. Mm-hmm. We talked a bit about the reboot. I think there's plenty of material there. There's more adaptations you can make based on that same source material. Yeah, that's something. So we'll sure, have... I'm always interested in seeing that. Yeah, we'll have to look into that. Yeah. yeah. So we haven't had a a clear decision now, but I think there are are plenty of things you can do because it is such a fundamental story, and there's so much to work with. That uh, sure, yeah. Any anything anybody wants to do with this, I would take a look at. And whether or not those other things work doesn't diminish this movie as being an amazing motion picture but kind of like the beast itself i don't think it can be left to rest in peace because killing this story and its ideas would take a lot more (laughs) fire you can't just hack this apart well i think on that note thank you very much for uh for downloading our podcast and listening hope you enjoyed this uh we'll be back in uh, another couple of weeks with some more tales of media from the 20th century but in the meantime ian where can people find you I can be found on Twitter as ItemCrafting, on Twitch as ItemCraftingLive, and on YouTube as ItemCrafting. And you can find me on Twitter at ByMatthewPorter. You can find me online at www.MatthewFPorter.com. And you can find the, uh, the podcast at IMMProject.com, and you'll find our back uh, episodes. You'll find links on how to support us on Patreon. You'll find a link to our Discord there. And we would love to hear from you, either for, through the contact page on the website, or through Discord, or through Twitter. And uh, you can find us on Twitter, by the way, at IMMPCast. And uh, by all means, let us know. We'd, uh, we'd love to hear from you. It's support like yours that allows my father here to continue to show me 
media of all sorts, including movies that I love and shows I've never seen before. So, so until then, thanks again for listening. And in the meantime, go find something new to watch.